Our Father and our God, we come before you desiring that you would open our hearts and minds in ways that will surprise us. Uh, we recognize, Father, that there are always elements in the scripture that we haven't yet seen or uncovered. And we pray that you would do that once again to encourage our hearts and lead us with confidence to once again experience the very grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. And we'll look forward to what you'll accomplish this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You people are out of this world. You people are out of this world. Now, when I say something like that, I could mean a couple of different things by it. It could actually be a put-down of sorts. You people are out of this world. You're out of touch with reality. What planet are you people from? Uh, you have no clue about the normal realities of our world. You are out of this world. That's one of the ways we could understand that phrase. On the other hand, it might not be a put down, it might actually be a great compliment. There is something really special about you people. You are out of this world. You are extraordinary people, above and beyond. When I think of you, I'm overwhelmed, I'm impressed with how remarkable you are. You people are out of this world. So it could either be a put down or it could be a compliment. But when I say this morning, you people are out of this world, I actually don't mean either of those things. In order to find out what I really mean, you'll have to listen to the entire sermon to find out. And when you do find out, you'll be amazed, amazed in ways that you perhaps have never imagined. We, we pick up our series on the Gospel of John this morning and begin to explore one of the great prayers of the Bible, if not the greatest prayer of the Bible in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but wait, that's not what you're thinking. That's not what we typically think of as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is what we find recorded in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke 11. It's what we often repeat with regularity in our church services. In our church, pretty much every communion Sunday, we say what we think of as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, that's what we think of as the Lord's Prayer. But truth be told, that's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's teaching on prayer. You see, the disciples had been observing Jesus for more than a year, and they had been amazed at this rabbi from Nazareth. He taught like no one else. He taught with authority. And his deeds, he was healing people. He was casting out demons. His miracles authenticated that this was no ordinary prophet. And his disciples had also observed that Jesus was a praying man. He often disappeared to pray. He went off by himself to secluded places. He spent hours in communion with his heavenly father. And the disciples observed his practices. And that's why we find in Luke chapter 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And that's when Jesus taught them the so-called Lord's Prayer. 
but it's really more properly understood as, as a pattern for prayer, a prayer guide, a, a help to keep us focused on what matters in our praying. It's not so much a prayer in itself, although it certainly can be used that way, and they, we do use it that way. Most of the prayers that Jesus prayed, however, were private. The disciples knew that he prayed, but they weren't privy to those times of prayer. Uh, Gene and I had a dear friend, his name was Richard Burr, he's now with the Lord, and Richard had an itinerant prayer ministry. Uh, he would go around to churches and he would teach churches how to be praying churches. He would spend about a week with them on a particular subject of prayer. Then he would come back to the same church uh, the next year and then the next year and the next year, and he had quite an effective ministry. Uh, Richard had essentially inherited the, the prayer ministry of J. Edwin Orr. Some of you perhaps know of that name from time past. Well, Richard one time told the story of an occasion in which he was ministering in a church and he was teaching prayer and he was focusing his instruction on that particular week on developing what he called the secret closet. And you're familiar with the secret closet. Uh, secret closet was sort of the foundational teaching of Richard's ministry. That's where he began with teaching in churches. And it refers to Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, when Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so that was what Richard was teaching that congregation, and his teaching was having an impact on that church that week. And he was staying in a host home during the week. It was the home of a, a middle-aged couple. And as was his custom during that week, he would wake up in the morning and he would go to the host's kitchen and he would get some of his coffee, and then he would retire to his room for his morning time of prayer, he would go to his own secret closet. And after he had done that and retired to his room one time in this particular host home, he heard a knock on the door. And that was unusual. Hosts usually didn't interrupt his own private times of prayer. But he heard the knock and he said, come in. And this couple, rather sheepishly, still in their pajamas, peeked into the room and said, oh, we're so sorry, but could we just watch you pray? Could we just watch you pray? We promise not to disturb you. And of course, Richard allowed them to do that. I can imagine Jesus' disciples wanting to do the same thing with Jesus, just wanting to watch Jesus in his private times of prayer with his heavenly Father. But by and large, they weren't acquainted with the content of Jesus' prayers. Amazingly, there are only two other times in which we actually know the content of Jesus' prayers to the Father. One was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we also hear in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, 
uh, this statement. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. And so this is a brief prayer. It actually foreshadows both Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and also foreshadows his prayer in John chapter 17, as we'll see in a moment. But John 17 is really the only time Jesus prays substantially and then lets us in on what he's praying about. And that's why I would say Jesus is John 17 as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus in John 17 bears his own soul in the most intimate of conversations with his heavenly Father. And he lets his disciples eavesdrop on his secret closet. Which means, I'm convinced, that Jesus really wants us to know about this particular conversation. Well, first of all, let's put this prayer in context. One commentator said, this is the greatest prayer ever prayed following the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, his closest disciples, not the public at large, in John chapters 13 through 17. He's taught them about servanthood, which he illustrated through foot washing. He's taught them about love, which is the new commandment he gives them in John chapter 13. He's taught them about heaven in chapter 14. He's taught them about the father-son relationship in chapter 14. He's taught them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 and 16. He's taught them about abiding in the vine in chapter 15, that to be fruitful means to remain in relationship with him. And now he's completed his final instruction. He concludes this intimate time of instruction with a prayer to the Father. And in so doing, he prays a prayer from God's perspective. The Son of God incarnate, praying by the Spirit of God to God the Father. If there ever was a God-centered prayer, this would be it. One of the primary themes of instruction and his message to the disciples had to do with his, the disciples' relationship with the world. We explored that months ago in chapter 15 when we examined it. The world, of course, in the scripture has a number of different definitions, and understanding it in context is necessary. Uh, we remember the scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that has to do with the humanity and needs of God's mercy and grace. That's what the world means there. God loves the world in that sense. But in this portion of the Gospel of John, the world is at enmity with God. And the world is at enmity with the people of God. The world is the theater of operations for fallen humanity. The world is the systemic anti-God dispositions that characterize a fallen humanity. And believers in Jesus Christ are then said to be enemies of the world. The world hates them, just as the world hated Christ, just as the world hates the Father. And so in John chapter 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus, in his instruction, warns his disciples about the persecution they would face by being in the world. And so it's not surprising that in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays, he prays a lot about the disciples and their relationship with the world. Here's how the text opens, beginning in chapter 17, verse one, and I would encourage you, if you have a Bible before you, to take a look at this. This is a remarkable passage, and you will find some surprises in it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The first petition, indeed the only petition in these opening verses, concerns the glory of God. It is not surprising that the, when God the Son, praying in the Spirit of God to God the Father, has as his primary concern the glory of God. And we would do well to follow suit. It corresponds to Jesus' instruction on prayer when he says, Our Father, hallowed be your name. We pray that God would be glorified when we pray that way. At the same time, as Jesus prays about the glory of God, it is not as simple as it might seem. He prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Then he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, listen to this, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word glory in the Greek is doxa, and that word really means an estimation of value or of worth. To glorify anything is to place a value on it. And in the case of God, it is to place an inestimable value on the person of God. To glorify God is to manifest his nature and character in order to affirm his worth as the supreme object of our worship. To glorify God has a variety of ways for God's worth to be displayed. And Jesus here alludes to several of them just in these opening verses. He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Here Jesus alludes first to his crucifixion. When a number of Gentiles back in chapter 12 had come to the disciples wanting to meet Jesus, Jesus recognized that his hour of crucifixion was upon him. 
And so in chapter 12, verse 23, we read, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so you see, when Jesus says the hour has come, glorify your son that your son may glorify you, he is asking God to carry out the redemptive plan which involves the death of his son for the sins of all of those who would ever believe in him. How does the crucifixion manifest the glory of God? How does the crucifixion reveal the nature and character of God? There is no greater display of the mercy and love of God than the death of the Son of God on behalf of a lost humanity. That's how the death of Christ displays the glory of God. And then in verse four, Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And so now Jesus is referring to his glorifying God through his life and ministry. As Jesus taught the word of God, as Jesus displayed his miracles, demonstrating the power of God, as Jesus lived a life of righteousness and holiness, he in fact glorified God on earth, accomplishing the work that the Father had given him to do. That's the kind of glory that John refers to in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus speaks of glorifying God through the crucifixion, and he speaks of glorifying God through his life and ministry. But then he says this in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so now Jesus asks for yet another dimension of glory, a glory that the Son enjoyed in eternity past, a glory that the Son left behind in the incarnation, a glory that the Son would once again enjoy in heaven in the presence of the Father. It's a glory characterized by light, by the effulgence of brightness. It's the kind of glory that Paul refers to when he says, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's the kind of glory that is evident in the author of, of Hebrews in chapter one when he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It is the kind of glory that we see demonstrated in Revelation chapter one, the vision of Jesus. In the midst of the lampstands, there's one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in his furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the kind of glory that came to be known to the rabbis as the Shekinah glory. 
the kind of glory that enveloped Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the kind of glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. And so Jesus prays that God would glorify Jesus and glorify himself, not only in his crucifixion, but also in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his installation at the right hand of the Father with the same glory that he enjoyed before the incarnation. Dear friends, the primary concern of the Son in his prayer to the Father is the glory of God, glory in all of its dimensions, glory in all of its fullness, and we would do well to make the glory of God our untiring focus of all of our petitions. Do you ever tire of praying that in the lives of those for whom we pray that God would be glorified in them? Whether we pray on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of others, may God be glorified and may the Father be glorified in Christ Jesus. And then in this passage in John 17, we find in this prayer another interesting revelation. And it's a revelation concerning eternal life. We take eternal life kind of for granted, I think. We think of John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Ah, eternal life. We love to relish the gift of eternal life. That by believing in the Son of God, we should not perish but have eternal life. But what is eternal life? Our initial impulse when we think of eternal life, that eternal life is just a really, really, really long life. It's eternal. We imagine the best of our lives now the most enjoyable things about our lives now, the most meaningful elements of our times now, and we just imagine those blessed times being extended forever. But Jesus looks at eternal life differently. Jesus actually defines in this prayer the essence of eternal life, and it's not just our best life now extended forever. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. You see, Jesus defines eternal life not in quantitative terms, but he defines them in qualitative terms. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. He defines eternal life then in terms of relationship, in terms of relationship with the Father and with the Son. The word in the Greek is no for gnosko. It is a Jewish idiom which is used to represent sexual intercourse. And so in that use of that particular idiom, it implies an intimacy of knowledge with God and of Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, I'm here to tell you that as Jesus prays to the Father, he defines eternal life for us. And we need to understand that the greatest treasure for the believer is to share intimacy with the God who is love, with the Savior who gave himself up for us, to share intimacy with the Father who sent the Savior to save a lost humanity, 
to share intimacy with the Spirit who applies the saving work of the Father and the Son by regeneration, by making us alive spiritually, by making us born again. Eternal life is so much more than just our best life now extended into the future. Eternal life is the enjoyment of fellowship with the maker of heaven and earth, with the triune God who lives, with the glorious being whose supremacy surpasses all authority imaginable, and yet who is the being who is for us, who lives for us. That's eternal life. That's why the late Dallas Willard used to speak of the eternal kind of life. It's not just a really long life. It's the relationship that we have with our loving Father and Son. Now, let's put all of this prayer together. Now is when we'll discover what I meant at the beginning when I said you people are out of this world. The way we start to understand this prayer is by focus on the, focusing on the concept of giving in this passage. We have seen the glory of God in this passage. We have seen eternal life as being in relationship with God and Christ in this passage. Now we need to see how Jesus speaks of God's plan of salvation, and we do it by exploring the issue of giving. See if you can pick it up in the text as I read it once again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, listen, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Dear friends, this is salvation from God's perspective, and it has everything to do with the notion of giving. You know, we have a tendency to look at the plan of salvation from our perspective. We recognize our sinfulness. We need a Savior. Jesus came, God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life that we could never live. So he died in our place. He took upon himself our punishment. We have a decision to make. What are we going to do with Jesus? We are called upon to believe on Jesus and be saved. That's the gospel from our perspective. And it is true enough as far as it goes. But in John 17, we have the gospel from God's perspective. And here's what it is. Listen. Jesus was with God in glory before the world was. Verse 5, God the Father gave Jesus authority over all people. Verse 2, God gave Jesus certain people out of the world to save. Verse 6, Jesus comes to earth with work to do that had been given to him by the Father, that is to live a sinless and righteous life in verse 4. Jesus finishes the work given to him by going to the cross 
That's what he refers to in verse one. Prays that the Father would glorify the Son, recognizing the cross. And then God glorifies Jesus by raising him from the dead and in the ascension installing him as king in verse five. And then Jesus gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to Jesus. That's the gospel from God's perspective. Think of it in terms of giving. The Father giving to the Son. The Father gave to the Son a people out of the world. God gave to the Son authority over all human beings. God gave to the Son a work to do. And then what did the Son give? The Son gives eternal life to all of those whom the Father had given to Jesus out of the world. And so, dear friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that you've been saved out of the world. You people are out of this world. Do you get it now? You're out of this world. This is the gospel according to God, and it's all about God, not so much about us. God takes a people out of the world. He gives them to Jesus. He gives authority to Jesus so that he can actually do something for those that the Father has given to him. And Jesus, based upon that authority that he has been given and based on the work that he accomplished, gives eternal life to all those that have been given to him by the Father. That's the gospel according to God. That's the gospel from his perspective. And so, dear friends, you want to eavesdrop on an intimate conversation between the Father and the Son? That's what you discover. You discover the gospel according to God, the gospel from God's perspective. God takes a people out of the world. He gives them to Jesus. He gives to Jesus authority. Jesus gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to the Son. You people, you believers, are indeed out of this world. Do you struggle with the assurance of your salvation? Dear friends, when you read this prayer of Jesus, there's no need to struggle because your salvation is rooted in a heavenly transaction, a transaction between the Father and the Son, in which the Father takes a people out of the world, gives them to Christ, and gives Christ the authority so that Christ can give eternal life to all those who have been given to him by the Father. That's the assurance of your salvation. Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. That's the gospel according to God. Heavenly Father, as we get a glimpse into the heart of relationship between the Father and the Son in this prayer, encourage our hearts to help us to know that you have indeed taken us out of the world and given us to Jesus Christ as a great love gift, Father to Son, and you've given Jesus the capacity to give eternal life to all those who would ever believe in him. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that this extraordinary gospel assures us that we find ourselves in the palm of your hand. We glorify you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.